in case you uh, zoned out or took a nap in the last uh, 10 minutes, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27. I don't know um, how much of you keep up with like the superhero mo- superheroes these days. Um, they're coming out with all kinds of movies and TV shows about them. They're kind of like, they're, they've risen in popularity, but they're also like the cash cow. Uh, so, I mean, they're coming out with all kinds of spinoffs, TV shows, that kind of thing. Uh, and you have the classics, you know, like Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, Captain America, guys like that. And, and those, those guys are classic superheroes. So, so they just kind of exemplify the battle between good versus evil. You know who the good guy is. You know who the bad guy is. Uh, recently, in like the last 10 years, there's been a rise uh, in popularity for what's called the anti-hero. Uh, these include characters, uh, you may have heard of some of these, uh, Deadpool, Venom, Guardians of the Galaxy, Wolverine, Birds of Prey, those kinds of guys. Anti-heroes uh, are superheroes, just like Super Spider-Man and those guys, but, but anti-heroes blur the line between good and evil. Uh, and, and some of them, like, aren't, doesn't mean they're, like, bad, but they have, like, bad boy personas. Uh, and so they're always, like, breaking the rules. Um, they're, uh, sometimes they're irreverent. They, they just don't fit into the normal superhero pattern. And, and, and I like some anti-heroes, like Guardians of the Galaxy. I love the Guardians of the Galaxy. In fact, Drax, uh, one of the Guardians of the Galaxy is one of Peggy's grandsons. So, you know, we're, we're really, we like those guys. But they're, they're bad guys in the sense they break all the rules. And, and whereas, um, typical superheroes, like, really don't want to hurt people, um, anti-heroes don't care about how much mayhem or even death they may cause. They're, they're your anti-hero. Uh, and one reason we as a culture, and not, not just in America, but globally too, the reason we want more of this is because the line between uh, good and evil has been so blurred for us in our own world, right? Like, I mean, just think of all the increasing corruption that you may see or, or failures in leadership. Um, a lot of people have been cynical that good really does prevail over evil. So uh, for some people, it's like the pandemics or uh, economic crashes, inequality, that sort of thing. So they really see, you know, good is it doesn't really triumph at the end of the day. So uh, we appreciate or we want more of these anti-heroes that exemplify this. And they can exemplify reality in some ways. And this chapter in Genesis uh, shares a couple of things in common with all of this. Uh, the first is that this chapter really blurs the line between good and evil. Uh, like other chapters in Genesis, the characters here are a hot mess. There's not exactly one guy that comes out looking good at the end of the day, uh, or um, not necessarily less evil than the other evil characters. It's difficult to discern where righteousness and sin stop and begin. Second, it's that um, good prevails despite everything that happens. For all the bad boy traits that we see in anti-heroes, they always end up saving the day. And to some degree, uh, good ends up winning. 
it's hard for us humans to truly root for the bad or for the evil. So even these anti-heroes always have some kind of redeeming trait. And at the end of the day, some degree of good does triumph over evil. That's how this chapter works. But instead of like the good winning the day, blessing wins the day. In other words, despite man's efforts to thwart blessing, it wins the day by God's grace alone. And so it's in this way, this, this kind of tangled reality, blurred line between righteousness and sin or good and evil, a, 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 a blessing prevailing despite our efforts, that we have competing realities that this chapter prevent, presents to us. There's competing realities. There's three of them. And why this happens. And the first competing reality is God's providence versus man's scheming. God's providence versus man's scheming. This chapter is filled with competition. It's like March Madness, right? And, and at my in-law's house, March Madness, man, you get your popcorn, your jalapeno poppers, all the food, and you just watch. It's competition after competition. It's fun. And so we see all this this competition, and the first kind is, is the favoritism that's, that's at play. It's not even necessarily mentioned in this chapter, but back in chapter 25, we were told Isaac favors Esau as the firstborn, and Rebekah favors Jacob. And you see this playing out in this chapter. So already, right, there are these fleshly competitive plans to favor one son over the other. And, and not only is there this favoritism, but then you have Rebekah, who schemes against her own husband. I mean, she actually takes advantage of him because he's blind. So she knows she can get away with it. I, I, I'm in reading this chapter, right? I, I hear the warning. I'm already hard of hearing, so I like really need to pay attention when Aunt Mal asks me to do something in case she's trying to like trick me or scheme against me or something. I'm just kidding. Yes, dear. All right. Now, it could be that Rebecca remembers, uh, right, in chapter 25, God tells Rebecca, you have two nations in your womb, and the younger son shall be greater than the older son. She might remember, remember that, but in reality, we don't know what she's thinking because she goes about doing it in a completely wrong way. The line between good and evil is getting very blurry indeed. <laughs> and then beyond all this, you have Jacob scheming against Esau, the competition of Jacob versus Esau. Jacob already conned a very careless Esau to get the birthright, and, and the conning continues. Jacob, Jacob is a con man. And again, here's where that good and evil line gets so blurry for us. Esau was careless about his birthright. That is true. And he's got other problems, as we'll see. But what do, that doesn't excuse Jacob for being a con man and a deceiver. You know, we, we really have a hard time with this in modern society. Um, we have come to a point where we are so unable to look at history 
and see this, this at play, this good and evil that exists in all people, and to accept it. But we have it all right here in, in the Bible in this chapter. So you, you have this family, the family of God, not, no less, scheming and competing against one another, jostling for favor and to get their way. What a family. And it's okay if you have dysfunction in your own family. Because if, if the family of God acts this way, then certainly will we. But this only serves to highlight the true competition that's happening in this chapter. God's providence and man's scheming. Man has always been scheming against God. We scheme all the time to get what we want. We scheme if only we can act good enough to get favor. We scheme if if we just pray enough. Or maybe we just sin to get what we want. We scheme to sin. And in reality, the scheming that we see here in Genesis and the scheming in our own lives all potentially foil the blessing. That's the whole point, is that this scheming puts blessing at risk. It's like if a law to protect free speech was passed. That's a blessing. But it it passed not because of uh, democracy or votes or anything like that, but because a millionaire paid politicians to pass it. Free speech and laws that protect those are good and are a blessing, but if it's brought about through scheming, then it puts the whole thing at risk. What this really is a picture of is not man's goodness, but God's providence. God still bestows blessing despite man's scheming. Jacob at the end of the day, walks away with God's blessing even though he should totally be cursed. The blessing goes to Jacob exactly according to God's plan. Because of God's providence, despite the sinful scheming of everyone involved in this chapter. Praise God! For his holy desire to bring blessing despite our scheming. This, this week, I want you to think about giving thanks. And, and I want you to give thanks by dwelling on two realities. First, by remembering how badly you have messed up. By how sinful you are and have been. Like Remember that. Call that to mind. Think about how close you've come to sabotaging God's grace in your life. But take that and drown it in the sea of God's grace to you that your scheming didn't end His blessing, but that His blessings came to you anyway. And that He freely blesses you despite that. That'll help you give thanks. So we have God's providence versus man's scheming. And that's not the only competing reality. We also see God's omniscience versus man's performing. Um, Even though the lines are blurred in this chapter, right? Lines are blurred between good and evil. 
there are clues that even though characters are acting so similar, there's important differences underneath the surface. We have important clues. So let's take uh, a look at Esau. This is a really famous passage because when uh, Esau realizes that Jacob gets the blessing, Esau pleads with Isaac with, with weeping for the blessing, right? It seems like he really wants it. It seems like he's really, really repentant about this. And on, on the surface, it looks genuine. I mean, he's crying over it. But in reality, it's, it's all performance. I want to show you why. Let's remember Esau's life. Back in chapter 25, he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. This, this shows an extreme lack of carelessness on Esau's part. Not, 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 not like negligence, but just like, I don't care. It's a sinful carelessness. And then, at the end of chapter 26, right before this, uh, we were shown that he married not just one, but two Hittite women as an act of rebellion on his part. And this made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. That's when we read later in chapter 27, Isaac and Rebekah brings it up again. Her life is bitter because of the Hittite women. This is what this means. Esau didn't care if he made life bitter for his parents, and he didn't want the responsibility of the birthright, but he still wanted blessing anyway. He wanted all the blessing without caring anything about how he lived. He wanted to live a cursed life, but end up with blessing in the end. This is exactly what happened with uh, guys like Mark Driscoll and even Ravi Zacharias. So that's Esau's problem. He wanted to live life how he wanted to without the responsibility of, of, of everything that he was supposed to do and, and get all the blessing anyway. And even in this chapter, we see glimpses of Esau's wicked heart. So look at chapter 27 with me at verse 36. He learns that, that Jacob has schemed him, got the birthright. And then Esau says this, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. Behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And what's interesting is that Esau is partially right. Like, Jacob did trick him. But there's no acknowledgement of his own sin or the part that he played. It's no coincidence then that Esau basically becomes a new picture of Cain in this chapter. You guys remember Cain? Cain did not want to take responsibility for his own actions. And Cain, like Cain, Esau wanted to murder his brother. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. It's the exact same situation as Cain. Cain was jealous because of God's favor, God's blessing on Abel, and consoled himself by murdering his brother. And so the question that's being answered in a culture where the firstborn always got the birthright, and it's a scandal when they don't, the question is, why didn't get the Esau get the birthright? What happened? He was tricked, yes. 
Absolutely. His own mother and brother schemed against him. But at the end of the day, what we need to see is that it was his fault. He wanted to live his life of sin, but still wanted the blessing in the end. And you can't do that. You might get away with sin for a while, but it will always find you out. Without exception. You will not escape. Sin will eat you alive and destroy your life. This is where God's omniscience comes into play. God's omniscience means He's all-knowing. And God knew Esau's heart despite the appearance of repentance. And listen, it, it wasn't repentance at all, but only penance. Right? Here's the difference. Penance is performance. It, it's trying to be sorry enough. Trying to feel guilty enough or make up for all that you've done. That's penance. Penance is an outward action. Repentance happens in the heart. Penance might mean you go to jail for a crime, but that doesn't mean you're actually repentant for what you've done. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. You might be able to trick people with your performance, but you can't trick God. So don't go to God and try to hide behind a facade. This is, this is what we do. We, we try to go to God and we try to act like our sin wasn't all that bad. Or, or, or we, we act like we're not as bad a sinner as someone else. Don't try to feel guilty enough or sorry enough. Go to God as you are and all your sickly, sinful self knowing you're in drastic need of surgery. That's what Jesus meant when He taught about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. We can go to God wherever we are. And the whole point of being able to pray to God in your closet is that literally you can pray to Him where you are, geographically, physically. But the point of that too is also emotionally and spiritually to go to Him in, as you are. In simplicity. Right? You don't have to make up all the stuff about yourselves. You don't have to talk about all the righteous things you've done or compare yourself to other people and like Jesus taught with the pagans, you don't have to say all these words or you know, conjure up all these different things. You just go to God as you are. It's God's omniscience versus man's performance. And it's God's omniscience that He not only sees Esau's heart, but Jacob's too. And this is really important because Jacob uses trickery and performance much like Esau, but his heart is in another place. And really, as we read this chapter, we can't, we can't see that. We, we, as the audience, don't really see it until the end of the chapter. And this brings us to the final competing reality, God's grace versus man's rebellion. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, there are several competitions happening. Isaac and Rebekah and their favoritism. Isaac versus Rebekah. Jacob versus Esau. And hidden beneath all of this is sin versus blessing. Or better yet, I want to frame it this way, 
the serpent versus the seed. Now, the serpent, Satan, doesn't make an appearance in this chapter. His name's not here, doesn't say anything about snakes or serpents, but his presence is certainly there. At the very beginning, the serpent has tried to foil and thwart God's blessing over his creation. The serpent wants to destroy the seed and man's only hope for redemption. Underneath all the scheming and sin in this chapter is the attempt to thwart the blessing that will bring the seed. But, blessing wins the day. God protects the blessing. It is by God's grace alone that blessing is transferred to Jacob and Jacob becomes the one through whom blessing and the seed will come. And God protects Jacob. He allows Rebekah to hear of Esau's plan and orchestrates Jacob's escape. Listen, despite Jacob's rebellion, God's grace protects him and guides him. That's wonderful grace. But more than that, and I would argue, yeah, more than that, God's grace comes out in Jacob's life. Alright, we've seen this several times in Genesis. One way to tell, um, or one way that we can see the holiness of characters in Genesis is through who and how they marry. We talked about this before. Marrying among the tribe of Abraham shows that someone is being obedient and to some degree is concerned with holiness. That's what happened with Isaac and is now happening with Jacob, right? Uh, uh, Rebecca is like, hey, I don't like these Canaanite women. Isaac, send your son to uh, my family to find a wife. And then Isaac sends him off with this blessing. So, so God's grace is coming out in how Jacob lives. Jacob is being obedient because of God's grace. And this is a good picture of God's grace versus man's rebellion. This is a good picture of how grace protects and guides and transforms us and comes out in our life. Praise God. But we also have a bad picture of God's grace and man's rebellion. In Esau, we have an accurate and vivid picture of the serpent versus the seed. Esau occupies the serpent's role to murder the one who will bring about the seed. That's what happens throughout the rest of the Bible. The serpent is always occupying the role of people who are trying to murder the seed, murder the blessing. And on top of all of that, we we read in, in chapter 28, those last few verses, Right, he sees the outcomes of uh, outcome of Jacob's life, and he takes a wife from the tribe of Ishmael. He doesn't get it. He's not concerned with holiness. Right, getting a wife from Ishmael isn't as bad as the Canaanites, but he's still trying to get a wife from a tribe that is in opposition to Abraham. That's what's important about the privacy with Ishmael. Right, that he will his, he will be against his brothers. His hand will be against his brothers. That is important for right here. He's in open rebellion. He is rebelling against God's grace. He didn't care about God's grace. And he's hardening his heart more and more. That's a bad picture. 
a warning for us. Neither Jacob nor Esau deserves God's grace. Both are ill-deserving. But I would argue that one knows it needs God's grace, the other neglects it. One seeks God's grace and the other takes advantage of it. God's grace versus man's rebellion. Despite the schemes of man, God's blessing prevailed. Despite Laban tricking Jacob. Despite Joseph's brother selling him into slavery. Despite making a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. Despite rebelling in the wilderness. Despite being exiled from their homeland. Despite opposition from demons and Satan. And despite a crowd of people shouting crucify, God's blessing prevailed. God's blessing prevailed at the cross when Jesus was crucified and buried. When the serpent got his way. The serpent got his way. The serpent killed the seed. But God's blessing prevailed when that seed rose again. God the Father accomplished this despite man's scheming and even through man's scheming. God took the deadliest, most evil scheme of man in hell and worked it for the salvation of the entire world. And now, we don't have to perform for God because Jesus performed perfectly for us. He, His obedience was performed perfectly for us and is now attributed to us. His sacrifice was performed perfectly in our place. His perfect life and death are now all of ours and all of our sin became His on the cross. Now we can go to the Father in perfect peace because despite the sin and despite the scheming in our hearts, it was all laid upon Christ on the cross. This is grace. This is grace that transforms us. Grace that protects us and leads us and guides us and protects the inheritance of blessing by the Spirit that was granted to us. Until we arrive safely at home. That is marvelous grace. The, the grace with which God protected Jacob is the grace that He now bestows on us in Christ. But Esau's life is a warning. Don't receive God's grace in vain. Take, receiving it in vain means taking advantage of it, neglecting it, caring little for it. Living how you want with without any concern. Living how you want, but still wanting heaven in the end. That's what it means to take God's grace in vain. That's what it means to live like Esau. But receive His grace today. You may have been living like Esau up until now. Receive His grace today and find new life in Christ. A grace that will guide you, keep you, lead you, Stay faithful to you despite your faithlessness. A wonderful Savior. Eternal love of the Father. A Spirit who works earnestly in you. Receive it today.
Let's pray and respond to God's word. Father God, there are competing realities. Your providence versus our scheming. Your omniscience versus our performance. Your grace versus our rebellion. But we also learn of a competing reality in our own hearts. The competing reality of receiving your grace versus living in in rebellion. Father, protect us by your grace. We are just like Jacob in this chapter. We scheme, we deceive, we sin to get our way. But God, by your grace, protect us from sin. Protect us from deceit. Protect us from ourselves. Lead and guide us into greater holiness. Lead us to life in Christ. Give us, by your grace, the greatest privilege of all. Love for your Son. Love for the eternal Son, Christ Jesus. And God, I pray that for any of us who are in rebellion, who are taking your grace in vain, God, show us that. Convict us of that. Bring us to repentance. That we would confess the ugliness of our treachery and hypocrisy and betrayal to you. To find the grace that you offer us in Christ. God, let us take fresh hope that your blessing prevails despite our scheming. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.